0: Hey there, and welcome to Wildlife Stories. This is a podcast about paying attention to the natural world and connecting with your wild neighbors. And I'm your host, Sophie Mazowita. This is our first interview episode of the podcast. So my intention for the time being is to alternate between personal story episodes and interview episodes, where I'll be speaking with a whole variety of people, Uh, just anybody who has great stories about wildlife, but uh, definitely starting with Some of my friends and contacts in the Nature Connection and wildlife tracking and wildlife guiding worlds. So today's episode will feature an interview with Bob Etzweiler. So stay tuned for that. Um, I just wanted to let you know that if you want to know more about my work and uh, some other programs and events that I have going on, you can check out my website, trackingconnection.com. A couple of things coming up are some live or live online, like Zoom storytelling nights. Uh, coming up in the next couple of months, and that's where members of the public, anybody who's interested, can sign up to tell a seven-minute wildlife story of their own, and there's a different theme each month. So you can head to Tracking Connection to check those out. Before I launch into our interview, I just want to let you know a couple of things about this episode. So first, that it was taped at the end of January 2021, so when Bob references different seasonal events. And the time of year, that's where he was at that time, or that was the time of year at that moment. And then another thing I want to let you know is that this episode uh, dives into a ton of topics, you know, Bob's background as a naturalist, a wildlife lover, and also a hunter. So much of our conversation actually does orbit around the topic of hunting. And I realized that hunting can be a really polarizing topic for people who care about wildlife And there can be some really, really strong feelings that come up around the topic of hunting. So do know that Bob will be telling some stories about being on the hunt, about processing animals. And if that's a topic that's really, really uncomfortable to you, uh, then maybe this isn't the podcast episode for you. Uh, But know that a lot of that comes later in the podcast. And we start with some other stories and Bob's history growing up just in love with the natural world and spending time outdoors And I would encourage you to come into this podcast with an open mind and uh, curious to hear Bob's perspective, because he just has some really deep experience and amazing depth of connection with wildlife out of all the people that I can think of. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. And without further ado, here it is. (laughs) Joining me today is Bob Etzweiler. I'm super grateful that Bob is here today because when I think about people who embody deep personal connection to wildlife and awareness of the natural world, he's pretty much one of the first people that comes to mind. So, Bob, welcome.
1: Thanks. Good to be here.
0: Yeah. So I was thinking back to when I first met you and it was several years back. You were leading a multi-day lynx tracking expedition in northern Maine. But that's obviously just one of the many things that you do.
1: Yeah. I actually forgot that that's how we met. Yeah. Nice.
0: So... What else are you involved in? Or could you introduce yourself to our audience and maybe let us know about the location where you're based?
1: Sure. Uh, I work and live in Southern Vermont with uh, the Vermont Wilderness School. And we do a bunch of programs, kind of, you mentioned our lynx tracking trip, but we do a bunch of programs focused on helping people connect with the natural world, um, children and adults. And right now, our kids programs are <laughs> in full swing and super busy with people looking for alternative options to uh, gathering in in safe ways. So we're, uh, we're spending a lot of time outside with kids right now. And our Lynx trip is on pause for this winter. Um, part of the fun of that was staying in cabins together in the North Main Woods and and heading out tracking and trailing from there. But that's on pause this winter. We also do a bunch of adult programs. I run uh, an apprenticeship in hunting skills uh, for adults. And we do some tracking programs in a in a few other various programs with other people that direct and, and oversee some programs as well. So
0: cool. So it sounds like a huge variety. But I wonder if you could describe like, is there a sort of typical day in the life for you? Like a work day?
1: Sure. So right now, with school year programs and kids programs happening during most weeks following the school schedule, it, uh, a typical day right now is heading out and having a staff meeting with, with staff and getting ready to welcome kids and then spending the day out together. And it's actually been glorious now that we've... Uh, I love snow and having some fresh snow lately has made our outings just that much more wonderful. And some sunlight too. It's been kind of cloudy for a while. So snow and sun and... So, yeah, getting together with staff and welcoming kids and uh, and spending the day outside making fires and following tracks and all that kind of stuff. so that's what it's like now, and coming up, hunting apprenticeship picks back up in March, so that'll be on a weekend we'll be getting together and practicing some of the skill sets that go into making competent and successful hunters, so that'll be swinging back up in in two months so.
0: That's great. I definitely want to circle back around to that because it's, you know, if I lived in Vermont right now, I would probably be trying to sign up for your Hunter's Heart Apprenticeship. It's something that I've been more and more drawn into, having started Mm -hmm. at a place of just feeling like I I could never hunt. I love wildlife too much to now I love wildlife so much that I'm interested in hunting.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting, I I love that paradox. I could just talk about for hours on end. So uh, uh, I look forward to swinging, swinging back around to that.
0: Yeah. Well, and actually, you know, since we're there, maybe we should just get into it right now. Like what, what was your journey towards that or just, you know, towards all of these skills?
1: Sure. Wow. (laughs) You know, a a couple interesting tangents on that. For me, uh, the journey into offering this hunting apprenticeship was in part studying, tracking in a similar way through an apprenticeship with white pine programs. Did you take that apprenticeship, Sophie?
0: Yeah, I think a, a few years after you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. I thought, I thought so. And I I just became really drawn to that, that kind of structure and and way to teach uh, something. So it's my apprenticeship and this tracking apprenticeship are similar. We get together for uh, a full weekend, once a month, or in my case, sometimes every other month. And instead of having kind of more overt teaching. It's going out and doing those things together, which I'm really drawn to learning that way and and becoming more drawn to sort of teaching that way. So when I started thinking about teaching hunting, I was thinking about the skill sets that go into it and the subsets that go into it. And I have really fond memories of being like eight years old and growing up on a farm and walking out to some of our back fields and realizing that deer would come out of the woods into these like hay fields to feed, and so I used to go back there all the time to watch deer and One thing that I started to try to do was to predict where they 'd come out in fields and then like lay hidden in the grass and see how close I could let them like walk up to me and so i 've always had this interest in in connecting with getting close to and trying to understand more deeply um, the neighbors that I share this space with, uh, the more than human neighbors as a friend of mine would say. So tracking is an absolute tangible outlet of that. And hunting is as well. And I'm finding more and more myself that kind of those two passions are just so intimately, uh, linked and inseparable in so many ways too. So I don't know if I, I don't know if I answered your question, but
0: <laughs> yeah, I think in part well, I'm, I'm picturing you as that Young boy in the fields. Is that in Pennsylvania yeah, yep. where you're from? Yeah. um w- Was there like a, a role model involved in that? Like, was anybody you know central in your life also engaged in that sort of thing, or did that just kind of? rise in you. Yeah.
1: Um, I had uh, my grandfather and uncles would take me hunting, but this interest in trying to get close to wildlife was just sort of something that came up in my own. I had friends that I played with, and I also had a lot of time on my own. And that's what I was kind of drawn to when I had free time, like wandering and exploring a stream near where I grew up, Beaver Brook, uh, and and then exploring the fields and the woods around it and and just, yeah, seeing if I could get close to deer and, and that sort of thing kind of just came as like my child's playtime.
0: Mm-hmm. And probably at a time when like your family would just send you out the door and you were allowed to be out there unsupervised, right? Oh yeah. Are the kids that you work with these days allowed those same kind of freedoms?
1: Um, you know, it's funny because in some ways I see my role with uh, mentoring children now in, in Nature Connection as like being the context for them to just do those things or being the sort of the container for that to happen. Like I'm good at fire and good at teaching fire. And so a while back, I was like pondering, like, why is that the case? And then it kind of dawned on me, oh, because that's how I spent my childhood. I would just, I was constantly out building campfires in the woods and spending a day around them and, or a couple hours around them or whatever. And so that's in a big way, that's kind of what I'm providing for kids now is the chance to do that. Mm.
0: Such valuable work. And did you transition straight from doing it as a kid then to teaching it and being in that line of work? Or were there other stepping stones along the way?
1: Yeah, a lot of my sort of work life has been sort of synchronistic in that when I was in high school, uh, I had plans to help my grandfather build an addition on his house one summer. But then uh, a summer camp that I had connections to offered me a job as a counselor uh, I was just a summer camp counselor at a, just sort of a regular summer camp. And so I that sounded fun to me. So I did that, and that kind of sparked my interest in, in working with young people. Uh, and then sort of my interests in nature connection were not necessarily like a separate thing, but in some ways they were. And so it wasn't until years later and getting connected with Tom Brown's tracking and survival school that I was interested in kind of merging the two and then moving to Vermont, uh, about 15 years ago and connecting with other organizations that did that more explicitly that I, that kind of really is where my kind of focus in that took, uh, took a lot more shape.
0: Mm. And what brought you up to Vermont? (laughs)
1: Um, that's, I, it's kind of a funny story. Just a friend of mine was, uh, in the process of, opening a sort of quasi spiritual retreat center. And he asked me to, uh, I had just resigned from a camp that I was a uh, program director at. And he he called me like the next day and told me about his plans to open this sort of retreat center. And his comment was, or his, his sales pitch was, I like your interest in wilderness, uh, living skills and survival skills, it seems to blend and mesh perfectly with like spiritual growth and uh, other like sort of spiritual practices and I'd love to have you come here and work with me and I don't know if this is going to work or not but worst case scenario you've moved to southern Vermont for a couple of years uh, and then you go on this you know try something else and I thought yeah that's, that's a that's a pretty good sales pitch I'm I'm in so. <laughs> And ironically, I didn't end up, uh, I worked with him a little bit, but it was making connections with Vermont Wilderness School and so many more families here that wanted, valued getting their kids outside that kind of that's, I I ended up kind of arcing that way with with, uh, those folks in in this organization.
0: Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a strong culture of that,
1: I would say, across Vermont. Right, for sure.
0: Yeah, that's, it's fascinating backstory. Because I find, you know, especially people in your line of work or our line of of work, we connect deeply with places. And Mm. sometimes it's such a kind of funny sequence of events that can lead you to become rooted in the place where you are.
1: Right, right. Yeah. And and now I feel rooted here. And this is where I want to do this work. I don't want to I don't want to do it elsewhere. I want to do it right here. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So switching gears, I wanted to talk to you about turkeys today Mm -hmm. because (laughs) when I see a turkey when I see a turkey track I see a turkey feather I see a photo of a turkey Mm. I immediately think of you (laughs) and I I sometimes tell people like I don't think anyone loves an animal as much as Bob loves turkeys although I can't know for sure Um, (laughs) but but could you tell me about your relationship with turkeys or your appreciation for that animal
1: yeah for sure um and kind of back to childhood is in uh, like sneaking up on or trying to let deer sneak up on me and figuring them out. When I was a kid, I spent a lot of time in the woods on my own and with friends and hunting with relatives. And I would see deer and squirrels and pheasants and I, I didn't see turkeys. Yet I had a friend whose family took him turkey hunting. And so he learned that from his family. And this is in and around like 12 years old. And I didn't understand how I spent so much time in the woods, but never saw turkeys. But my friend was hunting them and and had success pretty regularly. And that just kind of blew my mind. So at like 12 years old, turkeys were this like mythical creature that lived in the woods that I didn't think uh, anybody with just, um, I I thought it required like a a superhuman skill set to see them or get close to them. Um, So I just gain this fascination and this interest in turkeys because I didn't see them. And so, I started looking for evidence of them. And so, soon began to learn to identify like they're scratching in the leaves as they're foraging and and feeding. And soon became, uh, soon was able to like ID areas where turkeys were. And once in a while, once in a great while, I would see some turkeys out in a field and so then I would go to those woods and start looking around and trying to figure out if turkeys were there. And this is interesting to me. One thing I really enjoy doing now is taking a video camera out and recording turkeys, just kind of doing their thing. So feeding in a field or or flying up to roost in the woods. So I, I love going out and trying to capture that with a video camera. And that started when I was 12 taking my family's camcorder and if i saw turkeys in a field or saw some sc- and then maybe saw some scratching in the woods i would go there and try to film them and so that started because they were they were this mythical thing that i couldn't get close to and then after years from the age of 12 of trying to find them and trying to get closer and then you know at 12 and 13 maybe I'd see some in a field and try to sneak close with a camera and inevitably I would just blow them out of the field and and they would fly away and flee and like I just immediately became uh, began to realize like oh this is like turkeys are different you have to how I might approach deer, or how I might sneak through the woods when I'm trying to sneak up on my friends playing, uh, you know, hide and seek games in the woods. Like this is different. I got I have to develop a different skill set. I, maybe I wasn't thinking about it in those conscious or, or those uh, intentional terms, but I realized that I had to do something different if I wanted to get close to turkeys. So, throughout my teenage years, um, and and since then, I've been. Going out into woods, trying to find turkeys and learning from them about how i needed what I needed to do, how I needed to move, and how still ultimately that I needed to be for them to approach or for me to to get close to them
0: hmm. could you describe i mean I, you don't need to give away all your secrets, but do you have any tips for people who are looking to try to approach that animal and might want to be a little bit more stealthy
1: yeah um there's there's a there's a saying in an old book on turkey hunting that I read when I was 16 that uh stuck in my mind and I feel like it sort of summarizes a difference. Um if if you've seen deer or you've been uh if you, you've trailed deer or you're a deer hunter or you just enjoy watching deer whatever, you understand how you need to move around deer. And the saying in this book was that <laughs> that deer Will see a person and think it's a stump, and turkeys will see a stump and think it's a person, and that I just I love that because uh, turkeys survive by being afraid of everything all the time, where a deer might have a curiosity and and uh, if they see you move, do the head bob and then the front foot stomp and then even blow to to indicate they see you or they're alarmed. Um, Turkeys don't do that; they vanish. So it's moving a lot. You can, that being said, you can still move when turkeys are around, but it has to be so much more slow and fluid and calculated. So the easiest thing is if you want to see turkeys, uh, to find an area where they are uh, or where you think they'll be and sneak into those woods before daylight is a great way because you have the cover of darkness and to, to be still in an area where they are and don't move. And you you can see them that way and you can move. You just, uh, they'll teach you how you need to do it.
0: Mm, That's such a good point. Yeah. So, so get out early and wait for the turkeys to come to you. Yeah. And then listen and look at the turkeys for instructions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's sort of how I grew up doing it in part because uh, with hunting in the fall in particular, which is how I got introduced to turkey hunting, we would quite often, friends would go out into the woods at dark and listen for them to fly up. Uh, And then we'd go back in the morning knowing they were there and sit and wait. Um, And so that's uh, that's how we got close to them. And how I started learning to get close to them was was uh, fall hunting in part.
0: Yeah. Uh, So cool. Um, And obviously, you know, all those sneaking skills apply whether you are seeking to hunt these animals or just to see them, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. Sometimes I wonder, you know, I think about my pathways through the woods and that desire to get close to wildlife you know to like really track and trail and you know the ideal being obviously to view animals without being detected but knowing that there always is that risk of detection right of um you know flushing the turkeys or flushing whatever it is that you're trailing um i'm curious to know what your thoughts are on that and, and kind of around like the ethics of being out in the woods and um you know how to carry yourself so that you're not having that kind of undue impact
1: yeah for sure well, one thing uh, uh well lots of lots of different thoughts on that um, this time of year, well, specifically right now, southern vermont in the in the heart of winter we don 't have a lot of snow depth, and yesterday, uh, out with kids, we found lots of areas where deer were pawing up acorns, and with southern exposure, uh, some of the hillsides with oaks on them had a lot of deer activity. So deer were pawing up acorns and filling their bellies on uh, a bumper crop of red oak acorns from this past year. So I say that to make the point that I'm more careful about impacting wildlife when conditions are challenging for them. And so right now in the winter is a tough time, but actually one of the toughest times is like March when um, maybe winter's close to being over but there 's no regrowth yet from the from the new year, so as winter progresses i 'm constantly taking stock of my impact on wildlife and So, with the conditions in Vermont right now i 'm not as careful as I probably will be in another month, um, particularly if we get uh, another heavy snow or two and temperatures drop so and also, uh, that being said, there are some I think wildlife are pretty good at, uh, patterning and adapting to humans. So walking trails, I think, uh, impacting, uh, deer or turkeys near walking trails is much less of a, uh, negative impact on them than going through, uh, woods off trail. Um, because I think, I think deer and turkeys in particular are pretty good at kind of adapting to and, and, uh, uh dealing with that kind of impact. Um, So I'm more careful off of uh, walking trails out in the woods. So, Mm.
0: yeah, that's a great point about off trail versus on trail. Um, You know, it makes me wonder, too, because as as a tracker, like teaching tracking and nature connection, I'll encourage people to go and wander. Right. Just like follow your senses, follow a trail with, you know, good ethics in mind and thinking about the impact on these animals. And yet, you know, if everybody started walking off trail, it would be a whole other situation. Right. So it's it's an interesting thing, you know, kind of paradox, because you know being in the business of wanting to connect people to
1: nature and offer those deepened connections. Right. And there's a at this. Yeah. Boy, I, you know, I <laughs> I go in and my mind goes in so many places with that. Uh, we I was out with a group of kids yesterday and we uh, the day before I had watched a flock of turkeys uh, along the West River um, feeding along the the edge of the river and walking on some of the ice near the river. Uh, so with the kids yesterday, after seeing the turkeys the day before, we went to that spot and and just so appreciated their tracks fro- frozen into slush and ice on the river's edge. Uh, it was great. And then a little bit beyond that, we bumped a herd of deer um, because that place on the river's south-facing slope and a lot of oaks. So there were lots of deer there. We bumped a herd of deer in the direction that we wanted to go. And so as a group, the kids actually after we bumped them the kids brought up like oh do we we probably don't want to go in that direction now and that was kind of my th- thought too and at least i wanted to affirm that you know that awareness so we chose to go somewhere else and then on the other kind of side of that coin too is um kind of the realization that we're impacting the world in a lot of negative ways and maybe the impact on these couple of species is mitigated by the relationship with them that it draws us into. Um, so maybe that that impacting the deer yesterday is a net negative, but maybe the way it draws us into relationship and like a desire or a sort of kinship as well, and as a desire to be an advocate for them makes it worth it. And I'm not that's, I think that's kind of for everybody to play out and something I think about a lot as well.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe that brings us back to that question of, you know, appreciating these animals and then also that, that desire inclination towards hunting them, Mm. uh, and how that plays out. So I wonder if you could describe how your relationship with wildlife has changed since, um, yeah, in becoming a hunter or or even how that changes your perspective and going out on the land.
1: Yeah. Um, wow. That's a, that's a profound and lengthy conversation as well. I think when I started hunting as a young person, I don't think, uh, I I think that's maybe a necessary arc of it, but as a young person, I don't think I had as profound an appreciation for what it meant to take life as I hopefully do now. Um, and I'm, and I'm sure that that um, understanding and relationship to taking life will evolve and progress, you know, from this point forward as well. But to me, from my youth to my adulthood has um, has changed, I think, in um, the way that I've more so as an adult sought to understand the animals that I hunt to become a better hunter and a uh, more effective hunter I think there are lots of things that go into being a more uh, effective and efficient and successful hunter. But one of the big areas is understanding the animals that you're pursuing. And as an adult, pursuing, uh, seeking uh, to understand turkeys better and deer better, I think inevitably leads you to care for them more deeply and love them more deeply and and have a, a sort of more kind of aware, uh, or a deeper awareness on, uh, the impact of, of taking an individual life. I remember one brief hunting story from a good many years ago, I had shot a buck with my bow and, uh, trailed it and found, uh, it's, it's, uh, and found it dead uh, and so I dragged it out of the woods towards, uh, where I was going to load it into my truck. And at that point I decided that I wanted to stop and leave an offering for it. And so I started to think about what I had to offer it. And I started to, I didn't want to do what somebody else's tradition was. Somebody suggested that I leave tobacco for it. And I thought, no, that's, that's not my tradition. I don't want to do that. And lots of people had <laughs> kind of thoughts on what their tradition was, which is great. we wonderful but I wanted it to be um, genuine and I wanted it to come to me in that moment. So as I thought over what I could leave, I thought, well, I could, I could leave the arrow in the woods as sort of an offering to the woods. And I thought, oh, that doesn't make sense. That's not, that's like the air, the woods doesn't want my arrow. That's like, that has, that's, that's meaningless. Um, and so I started to go through other things I'm like, well, and one thing I came on, Uh, As I kept, I I, I kept thinking of things and I can't remember what some of them were, but every time I thought of what I could leave in offering for taking this life, every next thing I had to dismiss as equally as it came into my mind because it was inadequate. And the only thing that I came to was uh, some of my lunch from that day. But as I started to think of that, like, and that started to feel good to me, the realization just hit me that there's nothing I can offer that's equal. I've just taken this deer's life. The only thing equal to that is my own life. And uh, I'm not going to leave my life in the woods. Uh, And I just started to weep just profoundly in that moment uh, with the realization that I have nothing to offer that's equal. Um, And then I I remembered reading an author that I'm fond of, Derek Jensen, quite some time ago talked about uh, he lived in the Pacific Northwest at the time and his relationship to salmon. And he was going through a similar struggle. And one thing that he came to the realization of that was genuine for him was, okay, if I'm taking the life of a salmon, I owe the salmon my life as like an advocate and a, a champion of sorts. And that resonates with me, that if, if I'm going to take that life, then my life has to be committed towards uh, being an advocate for the, the animals that I hunt or, and being passionate about speaking out for, um, awareness on climate change and habitat segmentation and, uh, those sort of, and habitat loss, which is, uh, I think the biggest th- climate change and habitat loss are the biggest threats to most wild species right now, at least in, in this corner. So <laughs> that's a long and meandering response. And, uh, but that's, uh, hopefully that touched on some things. That, yeah, <laughs> no,
0: I, I appreciate that answer. And I mean, it, yeah, it, went to a really beautiful place. And and I think you hit it right on the head there that, I mean, those things are steps that you can take and other things might just be like affectations or just to think like, yeah, like what can I possibly leave? Mm. Right. For, mm. for taking a life. Yeah. Um, and I can picture myself and you know, I'm trying to like think ahead to, if I start to hunt, like, could I get through that emotional reaction of taking an animal's life? Yeah. yeah, But Obviously, not everybody who hunts has that same kind of attitude. So, do you ever find yourself in conversation with people who have you know, different perspectives on hunting and wildlife relationship? Does that feel like there's room for a conversation there with people holding those different attitudes?
1: Yeah, I I think there definitely is, and I'm actually um I'm uh I think of my my buddy and uh, fellow tracker and hunter Dan Gardoki, who's Really talented at navigating those conversations, and I, th- I think in kind of exploring that, I I think a huge percentage of hunters might relate to everything that I've said here, but that might also not be the language that um, folks would put to it, and so I think that in navigating those conversations, if you're asking questions uh, and not. Uh, coming back with uh, judgment, I think you'll get a lot of that. And I think that I know that I've been judged uh, as a hunter and have felt that kind of defensiveness and that kind of clenching up when I've perceived kind of judgment coming at me. So I think it's a pretty, it, it can be a pretty quick end to a conversation if, if somebody feels there's like an ulterior motive behind the question or judgment behind a question. And there are certainly hunters that I I don't relate to and, um, and probably don't have a ton of common ground with. And I bet there are probably more that I do if we would, if we would kind of have that conversation.
0: Mm. Those people who kind of come at you antagonistically about the fact that you hunt, like you mentioned clenching up, but do you have a particular kind of statement or sentiment that you try to, um, carry across to those people?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess, uh, I have, I have friends that are, uh, I have friends that, that hunt and friends that don't friends that are vegan friends that, you know, all the spectrum. And I, I think I, I like to, to follow up judgments on hunting with questions. And a question that I always kind of come to is, um, do you eat meat? And if the answer is yes, then kind of my, my, um, my, my feeling is that if you eat meat, you have, metaphorically speaking, the death of animals, you have that blood on your hands. And if you're going to eat meat, if I'm going to eat meat, I'll use I statements, if I'm going to eat meat, I don't want, I'm not comfortable with an acceptance of metaphorical blood on my hands if I'm not comfortable with literal blood on my hands. And I I have uh, vegan friends who totally understand my uh, hunting, and we've had beautiful conversations about it. And I I can appreciate people not being comfortable with that, but I I struggle with folks that are comfortable eating meat and not comfortable with hunting. And I I guess I seek to have integrity in my life, and so sometimes I I perceive that as a lack of integrity on an issue, and and that's an area that I, I... maybe like to question.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's fascinating that sometimes people can be so black and white on things like that. Mm. And, and then potentially yeah, not give thought to, to related issues. Like where does my meat come from? Although granted, yeah, there are a lot of people who have many different ethics and perspectives on it. Absolutely. So for somebody who, like me, who's you know kind of gaining curiosity about hunting, what steps do you recommend for somebody looking to access this?
1: Sure. So as I was conceptualizing, uh, the hunting apprenticeship, uh, that I run, one of the ways that I thought about it is what are the roadblocks that keep people from taking up hunting? And there are a couple, the way that I see it. And one of them is that I think it's a lack of sort of, uh, a lack of familiarity with, uh, hunting culture. So I encourage folks to find friends or relatives that hunt and just talk to them and ask them to share stories um, as a way of building familiarity with that and kind of gaining insight into that um, into that practice and into that culture. And another thing that I think of as a roadblock is a lack of familiarity with the tools that go into it, uh, whether it's a firearm or a bow. And so a suggestion there would be to, to find somebody that has a bow that might be willing to, to take you shooting. Uh, and, and, and try archery practice, target practice, or if a, if a firearms of interest, um, finding a relative or a friend who'd be willing to, to take you with them and, and try some target practice. And another thing that I think is a roadblock is knowing what to do with an animal. Once, once you have, have a, a, a dead animal in front of you, which is intimidating and so, one thing that I do with teens uh, and and adults too is is practice on uh, like it, it, <laughs> I'm I'm hesitating to to kind of go this way, um, but if if finding roadkill to practice on or an animal that maybe if uh, so practicing on um, uh, the unfortunate death of an animal on the road is a great way to understand how to how to handle that when, when it comes to an animal that you've, you've killed yourself. So those are a couple of things. And another thing that I think is a roadblock is sort of feeling the need to have mastery over all of it before you practice it. And that's it. (laughs) At least that's true for me. And a lot of things that I have sought to learn. So like when I was first learning a brain tanning buckskin's, I hesitated and stopped a couple of times because I realized that what I was doing on my own, trying to learn from books, was imperfect. And so there's, I I think, getting over the need to do things perfectly. That being said, I think somebody should be confident in their ability to make a good shot and should understand shot placement really well. And you can practice all of the things that go into hunting and you don't need to put them all together the first time. So going to sit and see if you can get close to deer, finding a deer trail and, and, and seeing if sitting there is a good place to intercept them during the daylight hours, like all of practicing, all of those things can happen separately before you put it all together into kind of the finished polished skill set.
0: Mm. Yeah, there's, So much to unpack there. So just going back, I I almost want to go through each of those recommendations or each of those roadblocks and just dig a little bit deeper. Hmm. Um, Because you talked about people just not knowing somebody who hunts or having any exposure. Uh, I think it's something like 5% of people in the United States hunt. Yeah. Are you aware of the numbers?
1: I, I have heard them and I don't remember them offhand. Yeah.
0: I could imagine somebody being in the in the middle of a city and, you know, maybe not even close to habitat where they could easily go hunting, but, you know, they could take a drive. But just thinking yeah. like, I don't know anybody in my network uh, who does that. Right. So it makes me wonder if there's other like organizations or, or clubs or other ways to kind of find those
1: people and access those people. I'm sure there are. And if it would make sense afterwards, I I can think of a few that I can't that won't fully come to my mind right now that I'd be happy to look up later and send you some links maybe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Although I'd be curious to just kind of like, you know, send the feelers out in your network and, and see potentially. And I mean, whether or not I'm thinking of, you know, the variety of listeners that could be listening to this and and maybe you don't have an interest in hunting, but I would say that there's so much information about the woods and relationship with wildlife that could be gained just from having conversations with people who are Mm. spending that much time out there watching wildlife.
1: Yeah. I, you know, just a sort of related tangent when I was um, getting into tracking more deeply, um, just finding understanding and following animal tracks, just completely separate from hunting. One of my mentors uh, referenced a trapper who was, who was, uh, a really knowledgeable tracker as well. You have to be, if you're going to be a trapper, I have zero interest in trapping. Well, not zero, but pretty close to it. I, that's not something that's, I en- envision doing. And so I was sort of dismissive of like, uh, like a trapper as somebody who could teach me about tracking, which was kind of arrogant of me at that time, uh, and ignorant as well. And, uh, yeah, there's some, uh, there's a lot of profound understanding of wildlife, uh, in, in some of those circles that, that, um, that I might be quick to dismiss as a, as a, yeah, not thinking about it clearly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, let's unpack another piece of this—the roadkill question, which you almost didn't bring up, but it, it was on my mind too. Like, I, I even have <laughs> friends in the nature connection communities uh, who have like roadkill taste lists, like that, like they mm. you know like keep track of all the different animals that they've actually tried consuming that they've found as roadkill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, a huge roadblock there, and I, I haven't gone there, and like curious about it. And it, you know, it seems like wise use of an animal, you know, that's that's already been killed. Maybe other scavengers could access it, but oftentimes. Uh, those animals are being removed from the road, right? So that other animals aren't drawn into scavenge right next to the right. roads anyway. So, Certainly. so yeah, wide use of an animal that's uh, been killed by people already. But for me, I just wonder about the safety around it and how I can possibly judge whether it's safe to consume wild meat. So like, <laughs> do you engage in that, that? And like, what's your process in in judging that? And I would say I would, I would wonder the same thing if I hunted a deer, right? Yeah. And, and thought like, okay, I've, I've heard about chronic wasting disease and right. Lyme disease and other things that these mm-hmm. animals can carry. How do I know? Even if I yeah. have like a gut feeling that it's safe and probably safer than factory farmed meat,
1: totally. how can I tell? Yeah, for sure. That's a, that's a great uh, and legitimate question. Um, (laughs) you brought it up, so I'll dive into it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have sort of, I have a, and I've had lengthy conversations about this with friends that do the same thing, but I have a, I I have a checklist that I go through. Uh, somebody just, for example, somebody mentioned the other day, I think maybe a first thing is to mention legality around it. Um, uh, where I live, if I contact, uh, my game warden and get permission and then seek out a tag from the state police, then uh, I can keep roadkill that I find. So that's the route that I go through, uh, to make it legal. So uh, after that, I go through a, a checklist to decide if an animal is safe to, to eat. And some of the obvious ones are, uh, just the other day, somebody mentioned seeing a deer that was hit by a car and I went to find it and the, the blood was obviously, uh, dripping and fresh. So, um, it hadn't frozen and it had been cold so that was uh, immediately a sign that it was uh more fresh and then all I did simply after that it wasn't a road pancake people have i think fair enough like these images of what roadkill means but this deer was hit uh and after we had skinned it later saw that it was hit in the the hips uh and it was not run over it was hit in the hips and fell dead by the side of the road so it was um, in pretty good shape other than that. So, um, after seeing the blood and then I just put my hand under its arm where if there's any re- remaining heat, um, touching under in the armpit, you know, uh, is where you would find it. And so I just put my hand in the armpit and it was warm to the touch. So clearly it was, it was very fresh. So, uh, and it was cold. So, uh, I had no questions about that. So I gathered that up and, and we processed it at a program. We, we skinned it and, and butchered it. And I've uh, had some, <laughs> had some uh, wonderful neck roast stew a couple of days ago from that, from that deer. Um, so yeah, if it's warm, there's no question that it's fresh. Um, if it's not in a hot season, you know, if it's in summer. And in winter, obviously, you have a little more leeway. So uh, another thing is uh, eyes begin to sort of go opaque pretty quickly. So if the eyes are clear, that's also an indication that it's fresh and, and not kind of beginning to kind of cloud over. Um, mm-hmm. so that's a, that's another one. mortis can be another indicator. Um, they use that in, in crime scene investigation. If rig- mortis is present, then it's only been X number of hours that it's been dead. And if it's been cold, then, then that's certainly safe. So.
0: Right. Don't then animals progress like past that? Like, yeah. Although, although obviously there's probably other signs that right. um, it's older after that.
1: Right. If it's limber and warm, it's f- super fresh. If it's limber and cold, then it might have already gone through rigor mortis and that's dissipating. And then I might have some questions as to whether or not I, I would feel comfortable keeping it. Mm. And even if you're not keeping it to eat, I've used roadkill to practice skinning and practice removing entrails, uh, and also to teach that with people and just find that, a uh, a pretty useful tool on the unfortunate situation that an animal's already been killed, then I sort of feel like using it after that is a way to honor that animal and uh, a way to make some some good use out of it for a, t- a teaching tool
0: mm. yeah, well, there we go a how to guide <laughs> not it's definitely not one of the topics I anticipated getting into today but i'm I'm grateful to uh to know and to hear your perspective on mm. it yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right. So processing is a roadblock, being Mm. able to yeah, access the people and those tools. I I think being able to access like bows and rifles feels like a more straightforward one that you could seek out kind of expertise or um, potentially even like, uh, you know, clubs or something like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. To be able to learn that. Um, and, And you brought up that really good point of that maybe being the most important thing before you actually go out and pursue this, that you need to know that you can make a good shot, right? And not endanger the life of an animal or just wound it. For sure. Yeah, which seems huge.
1: Mm, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And I think did we hit all of them? There might have been one other. I think we did.
1: <laughs> I <Yeah>. think so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice. I wonder if you have a a favorite either hunting story or just general mm. wildlife story that comes to mind. We don't we don't need to stay on the hunting point, but I know for you those two things are so intertwined. So mm, mm. Um, and you know, feel free to take as long as you like if there is a, a story that you'd like to share with us.
1: Mm. I guess a story that m- most quickly jumps to my mind is a story uh, of a hunt that um, that didn't work out as I maybe would have liked from several years ago. And this might be true of people in in general, or maybe I just want <laughs> maybe I just want camaraderie there, but uh, I seem to learn. More quickly when things don't go as i 'm anticipating than I do when when they come off easily or just as i'd planned so um, years ago, I was archery hunting, and the day before i got i was I was kind of paying attention to world news and just some stories in the news had gotten me i don 't know sort of depressed that night or um, um yeah, that's, that's a good enough word for it. It's just, uh, and I was kind of bummed out the next day, uh, and kind of sulking as I went out to the woods. Uh, and so I went to the woods and I typically archery hunt by climbing a tree and waiting an ambush in a spot that I think a, a buck or, or a doe is likely to pass. So I, as, as I climbed the tree and got settled, I remembered thinking, um, because I was in this bad mood, like, Oh, I hope something like, I hope I get a deer today because. Uh, I would just, I would love that. I'm in this bad mood. That would be a great thing. And totally clueless as to how selfish a thought that was. And so I, I hunted that day and uh, eventually, it was a little windy, but eventually I heard a buck or I heard, let me back up. I heard a stick crack and my head snapped, just feeling certain it was a deer. And there was a a really big buck coming towards me and I was really excited. And so I grabbed my bow and I turned uh, to face the deer as it was coming towards me and something in turning in, in me turning made just the slightest, slightest noise. And the deer stopped and both ears went up and the ears are kind of turning like satellite dishes, trying to pick up the sound and analyze what happened that was, that caught its attention. Uh, and the deer ended up not, uh, finding anything, but nonetheless, altered its path and started to turn sideways to, uh, avoid coming in my direction. And it stopped at, uh, 30 yards, which is about my limit uh, distance wise for a shot with a bow. So I made a noise with my mouth to stop the deer that sounded crudely like another deer in the area. So just, bah! and the deer stopped uh, and it was at about my maximum distance and its angle was turning, uh, just uh, a bit away from me, uh, which hunters call quartering away. So it's, uh, at an angle that's facing away from me. And it was a little steeper of an angle than I typically shoot, but still within my, what I think would be in my capabilities. Um, but in that kind of cloud of kind of wanting something good to happen that day, I drew my bow and the deer was at about my maximum distance and at about the maximum angle that I would consider shooting. And I thought, I can I can make that shot. So I let the arrow go and hit the deer and the deer ran off. And I immediately, um, I wasn't sure if the shot was good or not I, uh, once it hit. I felt good about taking it, um, but the arrow hit and the deer ran off, uh, is, as happens um, in archery hunting. Uh, and then you typically wait for a while because if the deer, uh, uh lays down, but isn't dead yet, you don't want to, you don't want to approach it and scare it, uh, and cause it to run off. You want it to lay where it is so that it definitely dies and that you can go and recover it. So you wait different amounts of time depending on where you think you hit it. Um, so I shot the deer, uh, and it ran off and I immediately regretted taking the shot. Um, because it's, there's something about the act of doing that that sort of awakens everything in me. Um, and the deer ran off and I thought, oh, why did I take that shot? It was at my maximum distance, at a maximum angle. And both of those things together, if it was a little closer or not turned at quite as far, it's a, it's a great shot. But I pushed the limits of what I was comfortable with because I wanted something good to happen to me that day. And so I didn't wait as long as I should have because I immediately felt the need to find this deer so that I could so that I could not have to face the consequences of, uh, make, of making a selfish decision. So I climbed down from my tree and I carefully followed the deer's trail and then I stopped realizing that I should kind of finally acknowledging no I shouldn't be following this deer yet. I should let it lay down for a while. And I went and and found a friend, and we went and went back a couple hours later and followed the trail, and we couldn't find it. Uh, and my friend went home, and then I searched well into that night with a flashlight uh, well into the night, didn't find it. I went back the next day at daybreak, and uh, I didn't sleep at all that night. But I got back as as soon as it cracked daylight the next day and went out into the same woods, and I found more sign. Uh, and a a few more drops of blood and a few more tracks. And I followed the deer and started making, doing a grid search within a large tract of woods. So walking out, um, one path, moving a few yards up and then returning on this parallel to what I had just done. So I zigged and zagged through this woods for the next couple of hours. Uh, and then it, it just became clear to me that there was no more sign that I could find that I wasn't going to recover this deer. And... Uh, that it may or may not survive um, the shot that I I placed. And in this moment, I f- just felt this overwhelming grief for not for myself, but for what I had inflicted on this animal because I was uh, focused on myself in that moment and felt this overwhelming grief and knelt uh, to the ground where I was and I started to cry. I just, I couldn't take... Hunters do their best almost all the time to do everything they can to make sure that a shot is perfect, so that an animal does not suffer any more than uh, absolutely necessary. Uh, And having done something to kind of violate that ethic, I just I couldn't I couldn't live with myself. Even even in those efforts to do so, every now and then things go wrong. Um, You don't see a little branch, and maybe that deflects your arrow, and I can live with that as long as I know that I've done my best, but knowing that I didn't do my best because I was thinking about myself. I like, I just, I couldn't take that. And I wept. Um, and what came to me was to apologize to the deer. And so I offered this, like this apology. I don't, Uh, I don't think I spoke it out. This is a few years ago now, but I just remember apologizing to the deer kind of in my mind and in my heart. And I didn't expect the next thing, which actually makes me sort of trust it more, but I immediately felt the deer um, tell me that he forgave me and I felt felt that wash over me. And I'm a little uncomfortable with how this story sounds. Um, Because if I were listening to it, I might think that that person was crazy or imagining things or whatever. Um, But I didn't expect, uh, I didn't expect one to feel like the deer was communicating with me and two to feel like the deer was very clearly telling me that it had forgiven me. But when it when I felt that wash over me, I wept even harder for about a minute. Uh, and then it it was over. And I knew that I, that the deer had forgiven me for being consumed in myself in that moment and causing it harm and pain. And that has stuck with me, um, since that day as a reminder that when I am taking a shot, that, I have to be, um, uh, admittedly, in taking a shot, you're choosing to kill an animal. But in making that choice, then I owe that animal everything in my capacity, in my focus, in my concentration, in my presence to do it right. And so that is as uh, powerful a lesson as I've received from hunting and as uh, powerful a, a hunting story and experience as I as I have had.
0: Mm. <laughs> yeah I can feel that one I I also I'm with you with that sort of like skepticism or when you're describing the like discomfort around like sharing you know having that sense of forgiveness coming from the deer and I yeah. I think um you know I I often kind of question those feelings and like intuitions that you feel too right like when you're out in the woods and you you sense something even you know it doesn't have to be a message that you're sensing from <laughs> another animal but like you know hair is prickling on the back of your neck, some kind of feeling, some intuition. Right. You know, I'm always trying to walk that edge and wonder like, am I manufacturing this in my head or is there something that's like visceral and and real here? Right. But uh but ultimately I think I mean there there's you know some version of of truth in it and the effect that it had on you um and that lesson that you were able to carry forward. Like whatever the you know (laughs) physical or um yeah, kind of like supernatural manifestation of that was. It's fascinating. Sure. Yeah. Hmm. But uh, deep, deep lessons.
1: Hmm.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, for sure. It's, it's a, a you no know, deeply personal story. Hmm. You know, another thing that I was, was thinking about as you were sharing that, and you know, we've, we've mentioned tracking because so we both met through wildlife tracking and just an interest mm-hmm. in being able to read, track, and sign. And, and that featured so strongly in all aspects of that story from just like the awareness of the first sound of the deer, but probably having a history of tracking in that area to understand the movement patterns of the deer where you were hunting. And then also mm. being able to follow the trail, whether it's the blood trail or uh, the path of the deer that's moving. Can you get away with hunting successfully without tracking skills?
1: (laughs) Yeah, because I did for (laughs) I did for a long number of years. Um, Especially if you live in Pennsylvania, uh, if you're hunting deer, (laughs) Um, there are a lot of deer in Pennsylvania. Um, It's funny when I I mentioned to my grandfather that I was uh, starting this apprenticeship. My grandfather is uh, as, as strong a supporter as I have. And he kind of, he kind of grinned and said, what are you teaching them? How to go sit in the woods? Like, what else is there? Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) The deer just come to you. (laughs) Right. um, And in Pennsylvania, uh, during the rifle season, um, there are enough hunters in the woods that deer get stirred up. So it's, you can go sit in the woods and it's not unreasonable to expect a deer to walk past you. So sure you can, yeah, you can hunt without tracking skills, but you, I think many of us too, Probably have more tracking skills than we might realize. So, in choosing a spot to hunt, even if it's not conscious, I, I think a lot of people are actually putting some of those skills to to use. Like, um, just when I started hunting, like, the, kind of the only thing I was keen on was deer trails, and so I, I could identify deer trails without having spent, you know, a lot of time consciously focusing on them. So a deer trail just looks like uh, a few inches wide, typically kind of more beaten down path through the woods. And often they follow like topographical lines or contour lines elevation wise, uh, just as as a kind of rule of thumb. So finding a deer trail and setting up on it is is probably employing tracking, but not not overly so, so yeah, certainly you can, and kind of the synthesis of those two disciplines is is kind of that's I think that's the origin of tracking is mm. is to put to use in hunting,
0: yeah, and the hunt, well, and that's mm. why I find that the more that I pursue tracking as a skill set i'm I'm looking for those applications of it because mm. um, it's just you know, such a way to, to really put your skills to the test or to you know, give you that need and urgency maybe and and that extra awareness.
1: Mm. And uh, while I don't think anybody needs to be uh, an especially good tracker to hunt, I have definitely become uh, a better hunter um, from focusing so much on tracking uh, as well and in, in seeking to become a better tracker. I've become a better hunter.
0: Mm. What what aspect of the hunt do you think that's impacted the most?
1: Hmm. I think what it's impacted the most is uh, finding and interpreting. Let's uh, let's talk about deer, for example. Finding and interpreting uh, the sign of deer in uh, in the woods, and synthesizing that into a larger understanding of how deer are using that landscape. And then understanding how I need to approach that landscape to successfully hunt deer. So I think mm-hmm. that, in a nutshell, is kind of the the value of, of of tracking in in finding success as a hunter.
0: Yeah, which I guess is that like mainly kind of the scouting aspect or like informing where you go on the
1: land. <laughs> yeah, both. Um, because if <laughs> I I think tracking feels like it's it, it's own skill set separate from kind of evaluating like where on the landscape you would go, but determining where on the landscape to go, like what elevation, uh, like typically uh, a really common place that hunters seek out to hunt is a saddle. So when you have a ridge, kind of a low spot in the ridge is going to funnel deer movement so that's understanding the landscape and how landscape impacts, um, deer movement, but that's tracking as well, you know, in kind of a larger sense and seeing, uh, seeing deer tracks and trails through that saddle. If you see that enough, then it's like you, you know, like you're understanding the role of the larger landscape on how it impacts deer movement. So they're, they're kind of finely separated, um, skill sets and, and sort of practices, I think.
0: Yeah, I love it. It's just all connected.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, and, and I've spent so much time, obviously, my curiosity is kind of lying on hunting right now and, and mm. just you know, wanting to learn more and more about it and some of the process of it. Um, but I'm curious to know about your routines and, and what you get up to outside, maybe away from your time with kids or on programs, maybe outside of hunting. Like mm-hmm. what other ways do you just get out exploring or, or maybe what are some yeah, practices or routines that you're into right now?
1: Yeah. uh, (laughs) Outside of uh, hunting and tracking, one of my biggest passions is simply wandering. I love to just go into woods that I know or don't know. And as kind of you mentioned earlier, just following my curiosity, my intuition, find something that catches my eye and going that way and, and, and going. And so wandering kind of is, and it's funny because it inevitably becomes tracking to me. So finding a terrain feature and wondering, oh, are deer moving around that, or oh, are there going to be turkey roosts on that the, that side of the ridge? So that's those are the things I'm curious about. So wandering, which inevitably becomes tracking, is what I spend an awful lot of time doing when I'm not hunting or or, or tracking. Mm. Yeah. And they so often merge and become the same thing. <laughs>
0: yeah. That's kind of my finding is that like, well, tracking is everything actually. Yeah. Like we, we track everything and it's like, you know, broadly you could just call it paying attention.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, for sure.
0: Do you have any fresh curiosity that has come from recent wanders? Like any questions?
1: Yeah. So, uh, one that's sort of, uh, as, as some friends would say, like a sacred question of mine now, just, the. So yesterday, for example, being out with those kids, this winter, the snow has been perfect for seeing deer pawing up acorns, um, because we've had a little bit of snow with a little bit of crust, um, so just a couple of inches. So being in uh, a forest with oaks, like basically under every oak tree now, um, especially with a bumper crop of acorns this past year, um, there are just innumerable spots where deer have pawed up the snow to get to the acorns underneath. So that's, that's pretty standard and pretty typical. Um, But one thing I've been noticing, um, especially in areas with turkeys are I, uh, so many areas that deer have pot up. I've seen turkeys go to those pot up areas to scratch in the leaves, to get access to the forest floor, to either get to acorns or get to other things, seeds and grubs, insect larvae that might be there. So kind of a question I have is I remember, this kind of learning that came through the tracking naturalist community several years ago um, that hummingbirds follow flickers, or excuse me, follow sapsuckers in their migratory routes so that they can use the sap wells that sapsuckers peck in the sides of trees, that hummingbirds can access those sap wells uh, to find sustenance as they migrate. That kind of, that was mind blowing to me. And I have a similar kind of question um, about the relationship of turkeys and deer. I wonder if um, turkeys have any sense of deer pawing up um, acorns and, and being able to anticipate that to, to find those areas to access, to have easier access to the forest floor to feed, or is it just strictly incidental? Are they, do they just happen through, see the, see the exposed leaves and then are drawn to it? So I'm curious if there's any kind of that relationship, like the hummingbirds to the sapsuckers, um, if turkeys, uh, and I've also seen a lot of tracks of squirrels, um, coming to those open areas too. So I was wondering if squirrels and turkeys intentionally follow deer to to find those spots or if it's just incidental.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating to think that because in that case, you know, deer are almost acting like, I hesitate to use the term, you know, but like ecosystem engineers on this micro right. scale, right? Of totally. creating that habitat and then giving right. access for other animals. Right. yeah. Do you think, I mean, I always wonder with these questions, you know, you you can't get into the head of a turkey and experience its sensory world. So you can mm. just look for evidence. And, you know, it's one of those questions where I wonder, can you find that evidence? Like, would it have to be spotting a turkey following a deer through the woods? That would tell right. you for sure. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I have no idea how to how to. <laughs> right. I, I was after the kind of question entered my mind. I thought, well, how in the world would I ever prove that? And I just kind of thought, I just sh- short of seeing that, I, d- I don't know how you would. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's what yeah. I love about those questions, though, because you know who knows what evidence or yeah, what what story, what sighting you'll have down the road that maybe feeds part of that or, um, you know, adds another piece to the puzzle. Right. Yeah. Ah, hmm. So cool. And like the woods are just so full of those relationships. I think that oh. we probably make the mistake of assuming that things are way more simple than they actually are.
1: Right, right. I've always, I have I have this sort of um, this, um, I don't know, it's uh, image in the back of my mind that if you track long enough, it's going to be like the matrix and that pretty soon you'll see all the ones and zeros and <laughs> <laughs> you'll see the relationship of everything to everything else.
0: Yeah, yeah. How's how's that working out for you
1: so far? (laughs) Well, I think I have a ways to go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I heard kind of secondhand a quote from Casey McFarland, who's another awesome tracker, that, you know, tracking and like every piece of information that you gain about animals or like something you notice about their trail is like adding like this little piece of light like this little piece of illumination onto the landscape mm. like lighting up the relationships and the stories and i just love that right. idea and I'm, I'm not totally capturing the metaphor perfectly here but that mm. idea of just you know mm. filling in all those pieces and building all those relationships and understanding until it just lights up the right. reality of all those relationships
1: right yeah <laughs> i better get um, going <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah i don't have there's not enough time
0: <laughs> yeah um well on that note is is there anything that else that you'd like to share with anybody who's listening
1: Hmm. I don't know. Um, for some reason, this little story pops to my mind. It came. It popped up a, a time or two in our kind of meandering uh, discussion. But uh, I was uh, I was wondering a while back, it kind of related to what I have to offer the animals that I pursue in exchange. And I was talking to a friend about it, and the friend uh, I was saying, like, "Geez, I don't know if I'm, I don't know." like, if I need to give more to the turkeys, like, in this exchange for pursuing them, hunting them, um, like, I question if I give them enough. And, and his response was, oh, my God, you give more of your time to wild turkeys than any human that I know. Like, how could that time not be worth something? And uh, so, that kind of stuck with me as far as thinking about um, – thinking about that exchange and thinking about the value in that relationship of offering your time, uh, to the animals that even if you're, even if you're tracking them, uh, or just seeking to track them, there feels like uh, value in offering them your time.
0: Mm. Yeah. I like that. Well, that, the idea of reciprocity mm. right in that relationship has, has really kind of strung through every one of the stories and, mm uh, discussions that we've been having, I think, So that's something I've been sitting with yeah. too, you know, like how, how do you give back or how do you make sure that you're not just having a one-sided relationship Absolutely. with these
1: animals? Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. There's another sacred question to yeah. hold through it all.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Well, um, maybe that'll bring us to a, a good close. Bob, if anybody wants to look up your programs or know more mm-hmm. about anything that you're doing, is there a website they can check out or somewhere they could go?
1: Sure. Uh, most of the work that I do is with Vermont Wilderness School. So you can check out vermontwildernessschool.org. And if you if you forget that, if you Google it, we'll come up. So love to see you tracking or, or at a hunting apprenticeship or at a program down the road.
0: <laughs> great. Hmm. Well, thanks so much. It's been great to chat and hear all your stories today. And, Indeed. Uh, yeah. Have a good rest of the winter.
1: Yeah. Thank you. You too. Good chatting with you.
0: Thanks so much for listening, and once again, a huge thank you to Bob for sharing his time and sharing his passion and reverence for wildlife through all of his stories today. If you're interested in learning more from Bob, I just got word from him that uh, as of the time that I'm releasing this podcast, towards the end of February, there is one space remaining in his Hunter's Heart Apprenticeship, which starts the weekend of March 13th and 14th in southern Vermont. Uh, So don't be fooled by the message on the Vermont Wilderness School website that says that it's full. It could actually be that there is a space remaining. So hopefully you'll have a chance, somebody will have a chance to take Bob up on that opportunity and join that group over the course of the next several months. If you're interested in knowing more about my work, my website once again is trackingconnection.com where you can find out about storytelling events and other wildlife workshops and events that I have going on there. And lastly, if you're enjoying this podcast, there's a couple of ways that you can help spread the word. Uh, Number one is really straightforward. Just tell a friend about it. And number two would be to give it a five star rating on iTunes or Apple, uh, which helps other people to find it more easily, too. So I'll be back next month with a story of my own, most likely involving squirrels, I think. Uh, So stay tuned for that and I'll see you then. Bye bye.